pray with me. Father in heaven, when your son was asked, what is the greatest commandment? We just remember and we meditate that he said it's to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul all our strength and all our mind. And he said the second is like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. And we, none of us have graduated from the school of even those ABCs of Jesus' commands. He said this is the most basic and we still need you daily to show us what that means. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would show us and would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning, Incarnation. Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, we began this sermon series on 1 John. And last week, we learned um, that one of John's central reasons for writing this epistle was to clarify what it truly means to know God. So he was writing this community who had recently been abandoned by false brothers, and they were feeling insecure about their own standing with Christ. And so he gives them several litmus tests throughout the letter so that they can differentiate what, what does a true believer look like from a pretender. Okay, and some of these tests have to do, we said, with belief. Some of them have to do with behavior. Some of them have to do with the way that we relate to the community. And that if we paid attention to these, they would help us to distinguish the true from the false. Last week we looked at the first test that John gave, which had to do with sin, the way that Christians react to the ongoing presence of sin in their lives and what that says about them. What does it mean for us to walk in the light? And this week, we come to the second test, which has to do with love. You know, what does, what does knowing Christ or being in Christ, what's, what's the kind of impact that has in the way that we treat other people and the way that we love others? So you might say that God has a love test. And uh, it's funny for me to think about having... God having a love test. I remember uh, growing up, there used to always be those love tester machines in the arcade. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm. Where you would like squeeze the handle and it would tell you if you were like some sort of chump when it came to love, what romantic love, or whether you were hot stuff. All right, so I got a picture of one of these love tester machines. There we go. So you so see all the way from clammy to like hot stuff on the top. I would hate to squeeze that handle and be like, oh, this guy's clammy, right? <laughs> Now, can you imagine if someone made a major romantic decision in their life based on one of these machines? Like, they, they got, like, a good score, and they said, all right, well, I'm, I'm just going to ask her to marry me because this machine says that I'm hot stuff. Well, I'm happy to say that I don't think I ever wasted a quarter on that game, but I can tell from some of the chuckles that some of you did, and you know who you are. But needless to say, this would not be a good love test. First John has a better one. But I want to make it clear right up front that the apostle never implies that God's love is somehow conditional upon our love. Or how lovable we are. On the contrary, as John says in chapter 4, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. But, and here's the test of authenticity. He says, if we have truly received the light of God's love into ourselves, then it will necessarily shine out to other people. 
Right? That's essentially what he says. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as a roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines upon it. You grab a Bible with me and turn to 1 John chapter 2. It's on page 1021 in your pew Bible. We're going to be looking today at verses 7 through 14. In some ways, this is a continuation of the discussion that he was just having in the first six verses of this chapter. And we see that John begins in verse 7 by addressing the church as beloved. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a great title for God's people? I need to start calling you beloved more often. I think if we could sort of begin to think about the church more in those terms or begin to think about ourselves more in those terms, that might have an effect on us. Beloved, John says, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. In other words, this, this emphasis upon love that I'm about to download on you, it's nothing new. Right? We had this in the law of Moses. That's where the command to love God and love our neighbor originally came from. And then it was reaffirmed by Jesus from the beginning. Right? From the beginning of his ministry. Love was the essence of Jesus' ethical teaching and everyone knew it. This was not a new commandment. At the same time, John says in verse 8, It is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you. So what's John getting at here? How can, how can it be both an old commandment and, and not something new, but also it's also a new commandment? This is, this is uh, Apostle John logic here. Well, I think he means that while the commandment first came through Moses, it's through Jesus that we actually learn what it looks like. Amen? It's actually fulfilled in Jesus, so it becomes new in a way. In Jesus, we see love lived out and embodied, or to use the language of John, it was made manifest to the world. Think about it this way. If the love of God was projected like a movie onto the screen of the world, what it would look like is the Son of God. What it would look like is Jesus. And the climax of that story would be Jesus' sacrificial death for us on the cross. We love him because he first loved us. The Apostle John records Jesus saying something very similar to this in the Gospel of John, which bears his name. After Jesus had just finished washing his disciples' feet, he's giving them a living parable. He washes his disciples' feet. And he tells them that he's preparing to die on the cross for them. He says in First John, he says in uh, sorry, the Gospel of John, chapter thirteen, verses thirty-four and thirty-five. He says, "A new commandment I give to you." This is what Jesus said. The one who says, "Hey, these are the two greatest commandments." He says, "Here, a new commandment I give to you: that you should love one another, just as I has, have loved you. So you also are to love one another." So we see here why John could call it an old commandment, but also a new commandment, right? Because we look at this commandment to love our neighbor differently this side of the cross. 
Right? Because we say, what does love look like? Wow, that's, that's what the manifest love of God looks like? Well, that's going to change the way that we interact with one another, right? It's like Paul says in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement, if you have any fellowship in the Spirit, make my joy complete by having the same Spirit in you that was in Christ, right? By putting others before yourselves. So we're constantly called to this cross-shaped love, the cruciform love of Jesus. That's what, the lo- that's what love for our neighbor actually looks like in a manifest way. I think sometimes we get this mixed up, don't we? And, and we, and we, in the church, we begin to value people the most that we deem influential in some way or knowledgeable in some way. I, I, I hope you hear me. I, I don't demean the idea of knowing the truth of God. I'm passionate about knowing the truth of God. But I think, honestly, sometimes we value that higher than people who actually love others, right? And we say, like, I, I want to go to the Sunday school class so I can learn this sort of, like, new nugget. I want to learn what the Greek means. I want to... What about practicing the commandments of Jesus? Amen? Amen? I remember I had this friend in college. We'll call him Fred. And Fred led a Bible study of, like, 15 to 20 people in his dorm room. And I was sort of his helper for a while. Now, Fred was not an intellectual he was not funny or particularly entertaining. Um, actually, uh, to, to, to put it kind of bluntly, he was a bit socially awkward. And um, I was pretty worldly at the time. And I remember caring a lot about that and feeling like leading this Bible study with Fred was driving me crazy because there'd be all these awkward pauses. Right? And I'd be thinking about all these deep things that he could be saying that might impress people. I'd be thinking like, you should, you should say a joke here. And I would just sort of kind of help Fred a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And then one day my InterVarsity staff worker who had good instincts for discipleship sat me down. And we looked together at Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. That's our Old Testament reading from today. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And the passage said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, nor the rich man boast in his riches, but let he who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And as I read those words, the Holy Spirit fell upon me and began to kind of mess with me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Began to shift things in my heart and see that it, it, it wasn't that the kingdom of God was upside down. It was that I was upside down. My value system was upside down. Amen? In the kingdom, a worldly guy like me, I began to see, had very little to offer. Very little real fruit to offer to people at the time. And meanwhile, a sincere guy like Fred had everything because he had sincere love for God. And he really loved the members of his group well. He cared for the lonely. He would buy us concert tickets and stuff like, maybe you want to go with me? It's no big deal if you don't. You know, he's just a really loving dude. So he always had a lot of people in his Bible study. Now, how about you? Do the things you value... And the people you admire line up with the values that God expresses here in his word. Or do you put too much stock in perceived wisdom or strength or riches? 
friends, it's not about the outside of the cup. Right? It's about what's inside of the cup and what flows out of that place. So the Apostle John writes in verse 9, Whoever says he is in the light... And again, like notice that John, just like last week, is making a distinction between words and reality. Right? Whoever says, whoever says, whoever says. So we can say something and have it not be true, right? Again, this Christian community that John's writing to had recently been abandoned by a sizable breakaway group. And this breakaway group still claimed, they still said in some sense that they were Christian. But they were claiming things like a sinless spiritual perfection. They were disobeying the commands of Christ. They even started to teach funky things about Him. So John gives the remaining community the second litmus test. And it's pretty much the same thing we just heard from Jesus in John 13. He writes, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So this applies both to how we treat other Christians and and probably also how we treat our literal brothers and sisters, right? I always tell Avila, my firstborn, that the test of her heart, the test of her character is not the way that she treats her mother and I because we have more power in the relationship, right, than she does. But how do you treat your little sister, especially when we're not around? I said, that's that's what you'll find out where your heart is at, Avila. John continues with that same line of thought in verses 10 and 11. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. He's already in the light, right? And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this second litmus test in the epistle has to do with love. And I don't think that John could put it any more plainly. Right? I mean, it's just clear what he's saying here. If we say we know Jesus, that we abide in the light, but we hate our brothers and sisters, we are fooling ourselves. That's what John is saying. And in the end, it will be shown that such people were actually in the darkness. Jesus will tell them plainly. Jesus, when he judges the world, will tell them plainly, I never knew you. They never knew Him. Maybe that sounds harsh to you and you wonder, how could someone as gracious and humble as Jesus ever reject someone, even if they do have hate in their heart? Well, I want to point us to our Gospel reading today from Matthew 18, often called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Flip there with me if you would. It's page 824. And Jesus says in verse 23, he kind of sets up the parable. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he goes on to tell the story of a king who forgives one of his servants of like a bajillion dollar debt. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what the Greek says. I mean, this, this number is so high, it's basically fictitious. How could somebody owe the king this much money? And so the servant is forgiven that debt by the king unexpectedly. Not just like you'll have to pay it back someday, but he's forgiven the debt totally. And then he turns around and sees somebody who owes him like a hundred bucks. 
right? And he grabs the person by the throat and he says, you have to pay me. And the person pleads with him. He says, no, he throws him in jail until he pays every penny. Debtor's prison. Now that is something, according to Jesus, that the king cannot abide. The king cannot abide that. He says in verse 32, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, on your brother, right, on your sister, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, this parable is, is fundamentally a picture of reception or rejection of the gospel. We see that? According to Jesus, God is so merciful that he's willing to cancel our entire debt. Really, there's actually no amount of sin that's too much for God to forgive. You've got a bajillion sins. He's saying, look, you can come to God. You can plead with God through Jesus for that. But he's saying if we've truly received the forgiveness of God, if that gospel seed abides in us, in our heart, and we know the costly love of God that's been shown to us through Jesus' death on the cross, then it's incompatible with holding others in our debt. Why is incompatible? In fact, if we don't forgive others, it shows that we never truly receive the gospel for ourselves. We're still children of the darkness, not children of the light. It's the same thing when it comes to love and hate. To hate our brother is to contradict the gospel that we claim to believe. And to show that God's light is not in us. On the last day, Jesus will be willing to forgive all the sins of his children. But he will never pretend that a son of darkness is actually a son of light. So that's the second litmus test to God's love test. But I mentioned this last week, that John is not sharing these things to jostle the community that receives them, to kind of mess with their sense of security. He wants to make it clear that he actually believes that they know the Lord, that these people who are receiving this letter are true sons and daughters, not children of the darkness. The purpose of this letter is actually to bring them clarity, not insecurity. He wants to be clear what it really means to know Christ, and he's also confident that they do, in fact, know him. So that brings us to verses 12 through 14. Look there with me, if you will. It's a mysterious little pericope. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now let your eyes pass over these verses for a moment or two. In a lot of ways, this is like a really mysterious section. I don't know if you've ever gotten to this and you're like, what the heck is John talking about here? Mm -hmm. And this has sparked endless debates among interpreters. 
Why does John repeat the same phrases twice with only slight variations? Or why is the Greek phrase, I am writing to you, suddenly changed to, I write to you, in the second half? you see that? And when the old man John uses the phrase, little children, in verse 12, is he using it to refer to all Christians, like he does back in verse 1? Or is he using it to talk to little children, like little kids? And to these questions... I think we could pose several educated guesses. But this morning I want to focus instead on uh, the heart of what John is saying rather than on guesses about the structure or language. An old mentor of mine used to say that when you're reading Scripture, beware of throwing away what you do know for what you don't know. And I think that's a good principle. Oftentimes, uh, actually, we'll sort of willfully let go of things that we clearly understand because, we, because they're, you know, we're, we're confused about what it says somewhere else and sort of in the willfulness of our hearts, we're like, I'm just going to pretend that I misunderstand it all. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that everything John says in this section could be rightly applied to all true believers about Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. right? Old or young, Male or female, slave or free, all of this is true to anyone who is in Christ. All true believers have had their sins forgiven for his name's sake. Not because of their own righteousness, but because we have Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our advocate with the Father. All true believers can be said to know the Father and the eternal Son who was from the beginning. Son of God who was from the beginning and was made manifest to us. All true believers have the word of God abiding them in them and have overcome the evil one. And John is writing to this community to encourage them that despite the fact that some false brothers had recently deserted them, he truly believes that this community knows Jesus and that all these promises apply to them from the young to the old. Now to some extent, I think these promises might seem foreign to us. Like he's speaking about something far off that's like sort of separate from our day-to-day experience. How can it be said that our sins are forgiven when final judgment hasn't happened yet? And maybe even, as he talks about later in the letter, maybe even our hearts condemn us. But he says our sins are forgiven. Right? And sort of the metaphysical slate of God, they're washed away. How can it be said that we know the Father and the Son when we haven't seen him yet? We haven't seen the Father yet. We haven't seen the Son yet. How can it be said that we have overcome the evil one when we all know the devil is still messing with all of us and still tempting us even if we know Jesus? Well, according to Scripture, we're living in very unique times that a Bible scholar refers to as the overlap of the ages. It is a very common phrase in New Testament studies. And last week I drew a sketch to help us to understand John's theology. And as we, as we begin to draw to the end here, I want to take a moment to draw uh, another sketch for you, all right? So we can understand John's theology. But this is not just John's theology. Um, Jesus talks this way, too. Paul talks this way, too. This is really New Testament theology, all right? And, um, all right, so this was, this was our uh, super profound theological sketch from last week. <laughs> and... Uh, Super beautiful art. We don't want that to treat it with care. All right. So John thinks in these terms, in terms of the overlap of the ages. So there's two ages that are talked about in Scripture. 
there's what's called the present age. Sometimes the scripture refers to it as the present evil age because from the time of the fall, things have been going badly. And so the present age is, is thought of as the present evil age. The, the, um, you know, Satan is, is messing with people and people are falling into sin and the world seems corrupt, right? And then there's the age to come, which oftentimes in Scripture is referred to as the kingdom of God. But the interesting thing is that in the theology of the New Testament, there's actually an overlap between these two ages. So initially the Jews thought that once the Messiah came, it would catapult everything up into the age to come. Judgment, final judgment would happen and there'd be a new creation and we'd all be up here except for those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. But when God first came in the flesh, when Jesus first came, he came in humility and died for the sins of the world so that we might be reconciled to God. And so that began the overlap of the ages. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God has drawn nigh. Repent and believe the good news, right? And so here's, here's one of us living in the 21st century. And he says, if we will look to him and have faith with him, then we'll become citizens of the kingdom of God. We'll become sons and daughters of the age to come. We'll become new creations. We're no longer old creations dominated by this present evil age, but we begin to live as new creations, right? Now, there is going to be a day of reckoning. There is going to be a final day when Jesus will, will draw a crown here. That's what this is, just so, just so you know. <laughs> Shimmering crown. When Jesus returns... That will be the day not of, of, of the consummation of the kingdom. All right, so if this, is, if this is where things sort of got started, this is where things get completed. So this is a time of glory, a time of judgment, and a time of full transformation of the world. Now, if we put our faith in Jesus, then we are sort of treated... As these kind of like dual citizens, we live in this overlap of the ages. We live in this in-between space. And even when Jesus says we should pray for his kingdom come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he's saying is we want some foretaste of the age to come. What happens in the age to come? Well, in the age to come, there will be no more sickness. So we'll want healing. What happens in the age to come? Well, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will have their sins forgiven. So we want our sins forgiven. In the age to come, the spirit, not the flesh, will predominate. So we want... We want the fruit of the Spirit, right? Not the works of the flesh, right? When, when, when we're when we, in the age to come, we will, we will have new gifts from God. And so he's, we want these gifts. We want a foretaste of these gifts now. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? Right, so this is the way that John is thinking about things. And we see that's the way that he's talking to people in this epistle. So he says, in, he can say in verse 8, the true light is already shining. Right? There's a sense in which the true light is already shining, yet he still has to warn us not to walk in darkness. He could say that we have overcome the evil one, yet also say in chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is still happening. He could say in verse 12 that our sins have been forgiven already. 
right? In this definitive sense, as the Greek implies here, but he could also say that we would have to continue to confess our sins. Like it says in chapter 1, verse 9, in this ongoing sense, as the Greek implies there. So in light of all this, Pastor Tom Steller defines the kingdom of God in this way. I think this is one of the most helpful definitions I've ever heard. He says this, The kingdom of God is the dynamic reign of God which is breaking into this present evil age with salvation and with foretastes of the age to come. The kingdom of God is now in the process of delivering men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation from their own sin and from Satan's oppression. It is here now in part and one day will come in all its fullness and banish evil once and for all. Let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. We started out by acknowledging that God has a love test for his true children. But this test is not about earning God's love. John says, whoever loves his brother already abides in the light. As one Bible scholar put it, our love is not the condition, but rather the characteristic of the knowledge of God. It's not the condition by which we earn it, it's, but it's characteristic of everyone who does indeed have it. And we talked about the old commandment we received from, no, from Moses to love God and love our neighbor, which was ultimately clarified and fulfilled in a new way through Jesus and through his death on the cross for us. I told you about my friend Steve, who helped me see that I was looking at the world in an upside-down way. We talked about John's desire to affirm this Christian community that he believed that they truly did know Jesus, and about the promises that flow to us and through us during this overlap of the ages. I just want to say in the end, as, as a final thing, that even though I do think that this passage, that this section in the passage 12 through 14 does apply to all people who are in Christ, I think there's a special sense in which John knew that the men in his day needed encouragement. Mm. That the old men in his day needed encouragement. That the young men in his day needed encouragement. They were struggling with sin. Can you imagine young men struggling with sin? And John told them, you have overcome the evil. God's word abides in you. And they needed to hear that. Amen? Mm -hmm. They told the old men who were maybe starting to feel like, I'm past my prime. My best years are behind me. Nobody's listening to me anymore. He says, you know him who was from the very beginning. Amen? You know the ancient of days. And I think it's all the more amazing that he could say to the children, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. And so I just want to close by saying, especially to the men in this church, young men, old men, I don't know how you would necessarily categorize that. I think in this church, if you're under 40, you're a young man. If you're over 40, wow, how old is that? <laughs> but just to hear the words from John, because we need strong men in the Christian community. And I think there's a sense in which men feel unempowered today. They feel embarrassed of masculinity. They feel embarrassed to step up and lead out in all the ways that the Scripture is calling them to. And I want to say to the men in this church... You know him who was from the beginning. Step up, stand firm, 
You have God's word abiding in you. And you have the ability to resist the evil one. Because you have already overcome the evil one. In Jesus' name. Amen.